Brilliant. Welcome. Uh, Sunday evening, 14th of February. Uh, this is Kingfisher Church live at five. Um, our, our Sunday evening Bible study and Bible blast. Uh, my name is Richard. I'm one of the leaders at Kingfisher Church. We're looking at Proverbs chapter 25 this evening, continuing our series in Proverbs. You ready for it? Maybe not. But here we go. If you're not, maybe pause for a minute. Just get your mind in gear. Um, here we are, though. Uh, uh, John Newton, uh, a famous writing the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, he was a man who who really um, knew himself uh, to be a sinner. Um, and very famously, uh, towards the end of his life, he said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. In, in his early life, he'd been involved in the slave trade. He carried out pretty abominable acts, acts that kind of plagued him through the rest of his life. And yet at one point he wrote this. He wrote, the worst enemy, that is the worst sin, the worst enemy we have to deal with. I wonder how you think he might have completed that sentence. Uh, what is the worst enemy? Uh, this is what he said. The worst enemy we have to deal with, self-will, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, self-seeking, self-dependence, self-boasting. See, our, our fallen natures fell in love with self. Uh, Adam in the garden grasped for his own glory and that grasping still grips our hearts today. Uh, basically, we, we think too much about ourselves. Uh, at times we think too highly, maybe at times we think too negatively, but always we just think too much about ourselves. And John Newton often lamented the work of what he called Mr. Self. Uh, we, we heard about Mr. Self this morning as Ben really helpfully took us through uh, the second half of Matthew 20. We thought about Mr. Self. Ben, ben called it the I first world. Well, well, this evening, we're going to consider Mr. Self again as we look at Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 to 27. We're going to need help. So let's ask the Lord to help us now as we pray and then read together. God in heaven, we come. And I guess come knowing that there is something in our hearts that will resist what you have to say to us in your word. Lord, there will be um, distractions. There will be hardness. So I pray, dear Father, that you would use your word as that double-edged sword to pierce right into the depths of our being, right to the point where we need to hear you speak to us. Give us hearts that are ready to respond. Bring your life, the life of Jesus, into us as we hear your word. Please give us lots of help. We need it. Help me to speak well. Help us to listen well. Help all of us. Uh, to put your word into practice. Amen. Uh, it'd be great to have a Bible open in front of you as we uh, go through this. Um, Proverbs chapter 25. Let me read for us. These are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Remove the dross from the silver 
and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Remove wicked officials from the king's presence and his throne will be established through righteousness. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among his great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. What you've seen with your eyes do not bring hastily to court, for what will you do in the end if your neighbour puts you to shame? If you take your neighbour to court, do not betray another's confidence, or the one who hears it may shame you and the charge against you will stand. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Like a snow-cooled drink at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you will vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbour's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbour. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Like a north wind that brings unexpected rain is a sly tongue which provokes a horrified look. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well are the righteous who give way to the wicked. It is not good to eat much, too much honey, nor is it honourable to search out matters that are too deep. Uh, Proverbs is unrelentingly practical and uh, maybe almost too much so. There's just so many lessons packed into every part. And I say that as a caveat, as we look at this big passage, and um, we're not going to be able to cover all of it. Uh, but Proverbs 25, it um, tells us at the beginning, this is the Hezekiah collection. So in, in the days of King Hezekiah, a few hundred years after Solomon, it seems that Solomon's wisdom was still kind of going around and there were some men in Hezekiah's time who collected together some of Solomon's wisdom and kind of compiled it and then added it into the collection that Solomon himself had compiled, the Hezekiah collection. Uh, the passage we have today, uh, we're going to work through it with kind of this, like, like one idea, really. And the idea we're going to have as we work through this passage is the glory of God in ordinary life. Uh, and we're going to kind of take the passage under those two parts. So first of all, the glory of God. Our passage begins, if you, if you look at it, and passage begins verses two to five. We have ideas of glory and of searching and of righteousness and the wicked. Uh, also, our passage ends, verses 26 and 27, with the same ideas. Uh, verse 26 speaks about the righteous and the wicked. Uh, verse 27 speaks about searching and glory. Just a bit of a, a side note, really, on um, uh, verse 27. The second half of verse 27 is quite difficult to translate. Uh, literally, it says, and the searching of their glory, glory. 
bit difficult to quite get the sense of it. Um, the, the kind of the, the negative idea carries over from the first half. So, so we could say, nor is it glorious to search out your own glory. Anyway, the, the point is that the kind of the use of the words connects the end of the passage to the beginning. We've got these kind of bookends of the passage speaking about glory. Verse two begins it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Let's pause on this. The glory of God to conceal a matter. What what glory is this? It's kind of saying that there is there is a greatness to God, glory, that means he keeps things from us. That there are matters that we do not know. Which is obvious, really, isn't it? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. Yes, the things revealed belong to us. Yes. But the secret things are his. The secret things are his, aren't they? Of course they are. The way of his working in creation. What do we make of that? He covers himself in darkness. There's a hiddenness to his working. Or or the way of his working in providence. what, What do we make of it? That he he directs the course of all things, but who knows how? Uh, Isaiah 40 says, who has measured the waters with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? With whom then will you compare God? His understanding, no one can fathom. That's his glory. This is his kind of his magnificent soul aching brilliance to conceal a matter. His hidden ways, the mystery, the depths unreachable. Now think about it. If if nothing was concealed, then that means that we would know all things and that would make all things pretty pathetically small. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Uh, how then should we respond to that? Well, it's a truth that should hit us square between the eyes. You know, we have to reckon with God. We must consider him, but he's beyond us. And there is something in us that hates it. In, in life, we, we seek to kind of control things by knowing. We, we want to find the answers. We want to manage the data. It's here with, with the coronavirus and pandemic all the time. Don't we want to get the data? We want to manage the data. We want to be able to think it through. We want to master the subject. And we try to do that with God. We want God on our terms. We want God in a way that we can manage. We want to be able to join the dots and make it all fit. And then we come across this. The glory of God is to conceal a matter. We don't like it. We want God to be like us. It's the tragedy, part of the tragedy of human sinfulness. We, we try to create God in our image. We think he operates like us. We think that his ways are our ways, or at least they should be. And because of that sin, we shrivel. Think about the way of, of his working in mercy. It's beyond us. In the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul declares the immensity of God's grace in Jesus and he digs into it as far as his massive mind can reach. And then he cries out in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. 
How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Glory forever because his ways are hidden. You see, the only the only way really to respond to this kind of glory is the fear of the Lord. When we come to God, we, we, we come to one who is more, most, far, far beyond the, the, the limits of our knowing, far, far beyond our ability to comprehend. And so we are called to trust, to trust the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct our paths. See, when it comes to God, we are not called to master the subject, but we are called to be subject to the master. That's not natural for us. It's not natural. When, when Jesus came into the world, he said, unless you change, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Saying unless we abandon all hope in ourselves, including that any hope in our ability to work it all out, unless we stop leaning on our own understanding, we will have no part in Christ. You see, what, what the gospel tells us, the gospel tells us we have lost all rights to life and we're subject to God's wrath. And the gospel tells us that God sent his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die in our place and become subject to God's wrath against our sin. And so he did when he died on the cross. But then the gospel doesn't say, and all who understand, all who can fathom the depths of this will be saved. No, the gospel says all who call on the name of the Lord, those who trust themselves to Christ, they will be saved. The fear of the Lord is not knowing all things, it's trusting the one who does know. I look in our passage in verse 2, how we now move from the glory of God to the glory of kings. Kings, earthly rulers, are put in place by God. Romans 13 tells us they are established by God. So they are to be honoured and prayed for because of that. But, but here in our passages, these proverbs move from the glory of God to the working of a kingdom. Our thoughts are led to think of the ideal king and the ultimate kingdom. The, the kingdom that we enter by becoming like little children. You, you see, in our passage, the first lesson of the kingdom in verses four and five is that the kingdom is established by the expulsion of wickedness. You see there, follow it with me. Verse four um, has this image of a silversmith. In order to make something useful and beautiful, the silver needs to have the dross removed. Verse five says that's like the kingdom. In order for the kingdom to be established in righteousness, for the kingdom to be useful and beautiful, the dross of wickedness needs to be removed. OK, good. And what does that mean? Remember the bookends of the passage? Verse 26 also speaks of the wicked and the righteous. Uh, in verse 26, we have this image of a mudded spring. When the water supply is polluted, it is a life-threatening catastrophe. 
that image what is it like it's like when the righteous fall into wickedness it is a life-threatening catastrophe now how do the righteous fall into wickedness verse 27 when they grasp for their own glory he's so often the righteous fall because they fail to contain mr self and back in verses four and five the point is to seek the kingdom the kingdom is established when wickedness is driven away. That is when the righteous abandon the project of self-exaltation. Now, why do I think that that is what is happening here? Well, it's because that's what verse six and seven are about. You see, verse five links to verse six by talking about what happens in the king's presence. Verse six, do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place among his great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to hum humiliate you before his nobles. Uh, Jesus took this, generalized the application in Luke 14, and he summarized by saying all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, you see this, those who seek first the kingdom are those who abandon self-exaltation. It's a foundational application of the gospel. We call it humility. The kind of humility that the glory of God demands. We're to consider others above ourselves. That's what Philippians 2 says. Philippians 2 says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, then... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And Mr. Self hates this. Mr. Self despises that the glory of God is to conceal. Mr. Self wants to stand on his own two feet. He doesn't want to submit. He wants to push up himself. This passage we have is framed with the glory of God and the corresponding humility of those who trust themselves to him. And, and that's how we're working in this passage with this idea of the glory of God in ordinary life. You see, Proverbs always pushes us to the ordinary life. And again, Mr. Self does not like that. Mr. Self wants to keep it in theory. You know, Mr. Self is happy to talk about humility as long as he has, can avoid having to actually do it. And Mr. Self lives in us all. Now, the meat of the passage we have here is shows how the humility we learn in the presence of God gets worked out in the way we relate to one another. We've thought about the glory of God now in ordinary life. And there's a lot for us to, to deal with here, really, kind of verses 8 to 25. We're going to try and pull it together under two kind of loose headings, two instructions. What's happening is this, if, we, if we're to live in the fear of the Lord, trusting Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient saviour, living before the God whose glory it is to conceal a matter, then we seek in humility to value others above ourselves. How do we do it? We do it first by holding back and secondly by stepping forward in love. We do it first by holding back. Mr. Self doesn't do this. He pushes forward. Mr. Self gives us that kind of urgent desire to act to seize but often humility demands restraint 
See how it begins, verse 8. Do not bring hastily to court. When we are offended, we can rush to respond. I'm, I'm challenged by this. No, 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 even today, this is something that's really biting at me. How, how we, we rush to respond when we are offended by something. We, we immediately want to give something back. As it starts at home, we call it lashing out or jumping in. Mr. Self does that. Mr. Self wants his case to be heard. But verse 8 cautions us, don't bring it hastily. There's probably more going on than you realise. We seldom know all of the facts. So be slow, be cautious. And if you do need to speak, verse 9, just deal with the facts. Mr. Self loves to drag up old wounds. He loves bits of gossip. He loves to say, it always is. You always do or you never do. And he's always doing it to make himself look better. First line, just deal with the facts. If you've got to speak, just deal with the facts. And Mr. Self overcommits. He writes checks that he can't cash. That's what verse 14 is, is, is speaking about. It's speaking about not delivering on promises. And why would we not deliver on our promises? In the uh, sitcom, The American Office, there is a kind of self-obsessed manager. And he promises this class of school children that if they get through their school, he will pay for their college education. They love that. They celebrate him. And he loves being celebrated. He loves being loved. But when it comes to deliver, he can't do it. Isn't that what we do? We we tell someone we'll do something because it makes us look good. Before we've actually worked out whether we can deliver. But, you know, if we are in humility to value others above ourselves, we won't use their needs to make us feel good about ourselves. Now, do we ever say to someone, you know what, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for that, before we've actually planned to make it happen. Now, why would we do that? Why would those words come from our mouths? Because when when we say that, when we do that, we are using their need to make us feel good about ourselves. Mr. Self overcommits. I, I, I guess part of it is that the Mr. Self often has this kind of saviour complex. Now, do we know that? No, we want to be the one who, who fixes things. We, we want to be the one who sorts it out. We want to be the one who is needed. We want to feel needed, don't we? I mean, we maybe feel a little bit jealous when a friend turns to someone else rather than to us. Do we know that? Do you know that? Look at verse 16. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you'll vomit. It's pretty good advice, isn't it? What's the point? Verse 17. Seldom set foot in your neighbour's house. Too much of you and they'll vomit you out. They'll hate you. It's saying, don't think too much of yourself. Don't think that you are somehow indispensable. But you see this pattern here, how Mr. Self loves to push himself forward. But humility says, hold back. In fact, humility says more than that. Humility says, that's not the way of Christ. Consider the restraint of Christ. And 1 Peter says, when they hurled insults at him, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And when, when we are provoked, when we're, a rise comes within us, Mr. South pushing himself up, trying to get a response in, Mr. Self will shrink when we remember Christ. When we're, we're tempted to, to make ourselves feel better by giving empty promises, when we find ourselves trying to be a saviour, longing to feel needed. But if we remember the saviour, Mr. Self shrivels away. I remember our saviour who humbled himself in restraint. He could have called down the armies of heaven. Uh, it, with just a word, he could have laid flat the crowd baying for his blood. But those lies and insults were hurled at him. And he said nothing. That's the example that he left for us. Not, not so much an, an instructive example, but the pattern of life that he shares with us. If we have any encouragement from being united to this Christ then in humility, let's learn from him to hold back. A humility holds back and, and moves forward in love. See, Mr. Self seeks his own interest, but humility teaches us to look to the interests of others. And we see that here. You, you imagine taking a hammer and... Um, beating your neighbor's brains out of course you can't it's repulsive it's almost repulsive to say it now why you know we could struggle to imagine uh, anything like that why why would we why would <laughs> what what why is that so awful that is obviously doing harm to another we're repulsed by it the first 18 says that's the effect of manipulating truth. Gossiping about a neighbour, we are destroying them with our words. And Mr. Self does that. He uses his words to put himself forward. But humility asks, how will my words do good to my neighbour? Love seeks the good of others, even when it costs. I see verse 19. Imagine you, um, you bite into something, bite into an apple. And as you bite, your tooth crumbles or, or you step out. And as you put your weight out, suddenly your ankle gives way. Verse 90 says that's that's the fair weather friend. When, when, when you need them, when you need to rely on them, they're not there. They, they harm you. When the going gets tough, they get going. Mr. Self is a fair weather friend because when it costs him, he leaves. But love stays. Love stays because love doesn't seek its own interests. It seeks the good of others. And you see verse 11. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Words directed for the good of others. Words that are seeking out what will benefit the other person that brings beauty. The, the contrast is verse 20. It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You see, 
Mr. Self doesn't consider the needs of the other person, so his help is harmful. But Mr. Self doesn't know how to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep because he's only thinking about himself. You see the pattern? Mr. Self puts his need above others. But humility says move towards others in love. Love that acts for the good of others at personal cost. Humility says look at the way of Christ. Verses 21 and 22 are probably quite familiar. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 12. There's a connection uh, to be drawn from verse 2 into these verses. You see, remember verse 2, that kind of starting point, the first step we take into this section. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Remember again, God has a greatness beyond searching out. His ways are not our ways. The the depths of his purposes, the depths of his mercies are deeper than we can fathom. And so from that, we have to throw ourselves in utter dependence on him. We dare not manage him, but we can trust him. And then we, we take that. And in the course of our ordinary life, we are met by enemies. This happens all the time. Anybody who acts against us they may be a real enemy may just be a perceived enemy in how we feel about it it's often our nearest and dearest sometimes even people we barely know what what happens when someone comes against us we could strike back could do that we could sit back and, and and maybe that is often as far as love takes us we sit back but the Proverbs just push us further. The Proverbs say we are to show mercy. Why? Well, look at it. Look at the explanation. Why should we show mercy and do good to those who harm us? Firstly, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think that this can only mean um, that mercy can find a gap in the hardest of hearts. You see, the best that we can ever seek for anyone, including our enemies, the best that we can seek is that they repent of their sin and seek forgiveness from the Lord. See, humility will seek the interests of others, even our enemy. Why show mercy? Secondly, the Lord will reward you. The Lord will. He's got you back. And Mr. Self doesn't take that mr self is always on the defensive he's always feeling injustice and there's a complaining spirit to him the proverb says the lord will reward you You it's saying you don't need to defend our corner we don't need to worry about what it's going to cost us we don't need to see that justice is done we can leave it with the lord but then mr self says i can't understand how that's going to happen mr self says i don't want to be nice to people who hurt me i'm I could ignore them, but I don't want to bless them. I can't see how blessing them will bring any good. And we say, oh, Mr. Self, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. He doesn't tell us how, but if he promises, then he will. And what reward does he bring? Well, when Jesus teaches the same thing, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? that you may be children of your father in heaven. It doesn't make you children, but it is the family trait. It's the trait of our big brother, Jesus. 
our big brother Jesus who went to the cross for his enemies and as he hung there he prayed for those who murdered him that they would find forgiveness in God now if we were to consider more of him if we were to consider more of the Christ then this instruction to love our enemy would would be less difficult and more of a delight the glory of God in ordinary life now when we sit back what what is the the way of life that is being commended in this passage isn't this the way of the kingdom Uh, so much of this is reflected in the sermon on the mount this is is really what it is to seek first the kingdom and one of the ways we seek first the kingdom of god is by refusing to exalt ourselves you know when jesus said seek first the kingdom and righteousness He said it in the context of people who were worrying about their lives, worrying about what they will eat and worrying about what they will wear. And Jesus says, you need those things. You just don't need to worry about them. Don't think so much about yourself, but seek the kingdom and all these things will come. And yet Mr. Self keeps worrying. Mr. Self keeps putting himself at the centre. Mr. Self keeps thinking that the world is going all around him. So he jumps up, he defends himself. And as he jumps up to defend himself, he ends up crushing others. He exalts himself, but he will be brought crashing down. And yet, and yet Mr. Self, he lives in all of us. Now, every day we will find Mr. Self at some point or other sitting in the driver's seat. So, so let's, let's, let's get to that point. Let's ask ourselves now, do you want rid of him? Now ask yourself as, as, as honestly as you possibly can, do you, do you recognize Mr. Self in you? And, and how comfortable are you with that? Do you want rid of him? What can we do? I think our passage is instructive because of where it begins. If we jump in partway through, we miss this one perspective that really governs everything else. We're not going to push Mr. Self away if we compare ourselves to other people no we will learn true humility only in the presence of god john calvin wrote man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with god's majesty it is the glory of god to conceal a matter what are we in comparison to him? What are we? We are a moment of dust. Now, tragically, we're more than that. We are depraved dust, deserving damnation. And what is he? He is ineffable in his sublime majesty. He's beyond all praising because he's beyond all knowing. He is immense. He's free. He's pure. He's always more. And his ways, they are not our ways. Not our ways at all. Because in his goodness, he came to join us in the dust. And he came to deal with our depravity and drink our damnation. He is majestic in his mercy. Majestic. How can it be that one such as him would love one such as us? How could it be that he would bleed and die for us? 
It's glorious to conceal a matter. The secret things, they belong to him, but he has revealed his grace to us in Jesus Christ. We learn humility only in the presence of God. And so if we are to seek first the kingdom, then I think we'd do pretty well to start each day at the start of this passage. Start with God. Uh, And Newton counsels, pray earnestly for a deep sense of your own insufficiency. Pray earnestly for it. Will you pray earnestly for for an authentic sense of our nothingness before God? To to let our hearts grasp at the utter uselessness and the emptiness of Mr. Self and and, and even to, to let our souls weep at the wicked offense of every moment we live as though we did not need God. Pray earnestly for it and then pray earnestly out of that sense of insufficiency for a deep sense of the all sufficiency of Christ. Yes, Christ. From there, let's urge our hearts to rest and to rejoice. And to use all our moments to consider the interests of others above our own. And may we see very, very clearly that I am a great sinner. And that Christ is still a great saviour. Let's pray. Glory. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Lord, it is your glory to conceal a matter. You are so far above us. And yet glorious because we know you as our heavenly father. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. So far and yet so near. Lord, we cannot fathom the depths of your wonder and majesty and mercy. And may we bow before you. Lord, please, would you give us a deep sense of our insufficiency? Oh, every day, Lord, please give us a deep sense of our insufficiency, of our inability to do anything in the world or in life. And then from that, would you give us a great, beautiful, refreshing sense of the all-sufficiency of Christ? Oh, Lord, may we rejoice not to look to ourselves, but to look to him. And as we look to him, would you help us moment by moment, day by day, to consider the needs of others above our own for the glory of Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining me this evening or whenever it is you are. And we're continuing live at five each Sunday evening. Um, Next week, we're going to be dipping into a couple of Psalms over the next couple of weeks. We'll be doing that. And with Paul, we'll come back to Proverbs again, then into Psalms again. We'll be a bit bitty for the rest of the term. Um, But each week, there'll be good Bible to look at. And may the Lord bless you in Jesus' name.